0: Внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Федор, мы получили только что, Владимир Путин по никто не слушал. Послушайте Привет. В Это Навальный. В Я уже
1: It's a new type of dictatorship, a dictatorship of the 21st century. It's about high-tech totalitarian control over society. That is how the self-exiled opposition figure, Vladimir Milov, described the latest efforts by the Kremlin to suppress dissent. Rather than violently disperse opposition demonstrations, Vladimir Putin's regime is letting them happen, and then arresting protesters after the fact, using photos from social networks and video surveillance technology. The Putin regime has also moved to brand Alexei Navalny's national organizations as extremist. Placing them on par with terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, just being a member of Navalny's organizations now can result in 10 years in prison. Are these the actions of a confident regime or those of one that fears that its days are numbered? Stick around to hear our take. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams-Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Welcome back to the podcast, Kostya. Nice to be with you. Nice to have you, and thanks for staying up so late with us. So, Kostya, it's just the two of us today, and I thought it would be worthwhile to take stock of where Russia's domestic politics stand at the moment. I see two contradictory trends. On the one hand, the Putin regime appears to be in something of a crisis. It's lost the support of the cities, it's lost the urban professionals and the middle class, and it's lost the young generation quite decisively standards of living are declining which is further eroding its support among the working class and the rural poor but on the other hand the kremlins dialed the repression up to 11. navalny's multiple organizations the navalny headquarters the anti-corruption foundation and the foundation for the protection of citizens rights have all been branded as extremist organizations we've also witnessed a series of measures including the detention of navalny's own personal lawyer ivan pavlov as well as cultural figures like the poet Dmitry Bikov and public intellectuals like political commentator Liedit Gozman are facing police harassment. What's your take on the standoff at the moment?
0: Well, I think that although it may look as if the regime is very much afraid, and that means on the verge of collapse, I don't think it's the case. And I think that part of what Putin does and his crowd's, And I think that part of what Putin and his crowd do is actually harassing people because they can. I think that there is a misunderstanding to some extent in the West of the mentality of the people that rule Russia. For the first time, I think at least for a century, probably in the history of humanity, we have a regime in which the security services are at the pinnacle of power. They are not adjacent to the party power or to a dictator. Uh, it's not Vladimir Montesinas with Fujimori in Peru. It's right. not Beria and Stalin, it's not Hitler. We have the secret police actually running the state. And I think that is an important distinction. These people frequently do things because they can, because they are always driven by this insecurity, the desire to plug the holes, the desire to guarantee, ensure, and then reinsure. So I suppose that a lot of what we see is driven by concerns about the so called Duma elections in September. The outcome is guaranteed, but they want to actually reinsure that it's doubly guaranteed. Also, there are fears, and I think you're right, when you mention that economic situation is not getting any better. It's not terrible. If you sell oil, gas, diamonds, and aluminum, whatever, the situation is not terrible. If you sell commodities, you will always have some money to pay your siloviki, your secret police, and the population. But I think that the money is, to some extent, it's not an immense, it's not a vast sum, it's not an unlimited sum. And of course, COVID struck significantly at the economy. And I think that theories, and you're quite right, that it's the working classes, it's, it's basically Russian provinces that suffered, that may turn away from the Kremlin. And in order to eliminate any kind of intellectual leadership for a potential pushback, Putin eliminates anyone who can speak up, and what's even more important, he wants to eliminate those who can organize things, Mm. organize protests, make protests visible, make discontent palpable. And I think that this is probably at least an important reason. But Mm. again, I think that something happened inside the regime, after which they decided not only they can do things, they should do these things. Mm-hmm. Probably it's the failure to assassinate Navalny that prompted this pushback because it became clear that this is an international scandal, that Navalny became really Russia's only politician on par with Putin, certified. I mean, if, you, if they want to kill you, you, you must be serious. And right. I think that Navalny's decision to come back also was seen as a challenge. And I think that this also added to the decision to tighten the screws. I have to say that Putin's regime is now very quickly transitioning beyond the point of, I don't know, Salazar Mm -hmm. and going straight into really, really hardline dictatorial uh, yeah. field with all due respect and with all due consideration given to realities of the 21st century. I mean, it's not as it was in Portugal in 1941, one right. radio station, one newspaper. I mean, it's clear that you can't completely unplug the country.
1: Yeah, and this goes to Vladimir Milov's comment about this kind of, dictatorship for the 21st century, all, all about high-tech totalitarian control. I want to unpack some of the things you said, Kosti, because like I don't think the regime's about to fall. I, I, I don't believe that. But what I do believe is that we are entering something akin to the late Brezhnev period, where we're going to have this protracted period of stagnation, this if you will, <laughs> right? Um. So I, that's what I think. And I think I'm judging that because the regime has lost the initiative. They're not setting the agenda anymore. That is clear. But the other thing I wanted to get into, because this kind of is unpacking some of the things you said in the past, because you're saying they are doing what they are doing because they can, because it's the first time we have the actual the secret police basically running a superpower. And that's not been the case just recently. This has been the case for a while. Right. But in the past, when this regime was more confident, it didn't rely so much on repression. There always is repression, but largely it was passive acquiescence this regime tended to rely on passive acquiescence in the past. And now it seems to be losing that passive acquiescence, and it has nothing left but repression. That's kind of my take on what we're seeing now. You're right about the Duma elections. You're right about the fact that there is not going to be any doubt about the outcome of the Duma elections because they have really perfected the methods of fixing those things. But. Elections in Russia, I always see as kind of legitimization rituals, political theater, and the theater's gotta be good. And Navalny was determined to make the theater bad. So what I see is a steady progression toward away from this passive acquiescence model, toward this repression model, crossing red lines, not just crossing them, they are hurtling them at like an Olympic you know, sprinter. I mean, the attempt to kill Navalny was crossing a red line. You didn't, there was an unwritten rule in the past that you could not, you would not kill an opposition leader of that stature. I would argue they crossed this line with Nemtsov back in 15, although Putin did have some plausible deniability in the old, it was, you know, of going rogue. Um, I, I'm not sure I buy that. But I see this steady crossing of red lines. I see this steady move away from a model based on passive acquiescence and and a model that had some legitimacy. Remember, early Putin did enjoy a degree of legitimacy that this version of Putin doesn't enjoy. So how would you how would you assess all of that? I mean, are we moving away from passive acquiescence and they're never going to get back to it?
0: Well, I think there's still a lot of passive acquiescence. I think that we still have a minority of people who are prepared to stand up to the regime, a minority of people who are actively dissatisfied. The majority want to survive. Mm -hmm. And actually quite a lot of people in the intellectual class and in the chattering classes, you and I know from Moscow and St. Petersburg, some of these people also want to adapt. And I think that here I have several observations. First, this is a regime which learned a lesson. You mentioned Brezhnev. Yes. Let us remember that under Brezhnev and Andropov, Putin and his entourage were just lieutenants beginning their careers in, uh, in the KGB. Okay, some of them were, you know, uh, even
1: Evenov may have already been a current yeah, general. Yeah, was. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I think that they learned two lessons from that period. A, the Soviet Union lacked basic consumer stuff, and people didn't like that. Secondly, everyone was marinated in this can of rotten sardines, which is called (laughs) the Soviet Union, and few people could escape. So in the end, these two things blew up the Soviet Union. So they decided to change it. If you look at Moscow today, it's a super duper 21st century city where you can have a massage in the matter of 15 minutes, you'll have a team of Thai masseurs coming to your place, <laughs> together with Thai whiskey. If your tastes are more modest, I mean, basically, there is a proverbial kalbasa sausage. On all the shelves. I mean, you want to have the money to to buy the multiple. Well, this is the key. You have to have but, the money, but and you that's have what... it. I mean, you can't say that you will stop, you can't say that you're going to go and look for things. Even if you look in a small city, I mean mm-hmm. you probably don't have the money, but you do have everything in terms of buying things, basic things. Second thing, the Sheremetyevo Airport is open all the time. Mm-hmm. And we'll be completely open when COVID is uh, is over. So, if you don't want to live here, you don't like what we do. I mean, we're not holding you here. Go, you know, go somewhere, smarty. Yeah, and as a result, if you, you, a you start your life there. You want to do your blogging? You want to do? Go on YouTube every day and say Putin is a bloody dictator. We we don't care. Fine by us. So this is an important thing. So essentially, the idea is to have a socio-political selection of the acquiescent mm. to be ruled. And those who don't want to leave, but want to you know, stick their head above the parapet, it will be cut off. Mm. That's one thing. Another thing, again, going back to the stagnation, to the Второй период Застой. You're right in a sense, you're right when you say that This regime has lost the initiative. I would even go further. I would say they can't provide any picture of the future for a country which is still important. It is nuclear power, it is a P5 member, it's it's a lot of things. So these people have been around for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. And I think that this works against them. But the problem is that political processes are fast. And germination of discontent is slow, especially in a country like Russia. Mm. So, yes, I mean, gradually people are getting tired of, of the same faces on, on television, of the same propaganda and things like that. But this is, as we know from Brezhnev days, this is this takes time, especially if you have full shelves in the shops yep. and your borders open. So it will not take very short time. It will take some time before things come to some kind of maturation. And I think that here you have a third important thing which I want to mention, and that is fear. You're talking about this kind of huge slate of repressive legislation and general repression. Yes, you see that it's there. The thing is that pretty much all of these laws are formulated in such a way that gives huge margin of their realization to those who sit at the top, to those who sit in the Kremlin. And here we see a repetition, to some extent, of uh, the Stalin years. Not, in the, not, I don't mean that it's yeah, no, I... like that has a gulag or something, no. But the psychological technique that's mm-hmm. being applied, it is selective repression. I call it lottery repression, i.e., you can be an opposition activist, well, probably if you organize too many rallies, yeah, you're really going to be caught. But maybe if you're just a regular run-of-the-mill guy who was sitting somewhere in the headquarters of the local Biabloko, well, who knows, maybe you'll be safe. Mm -hmm. But maybe you won't be. Maybe a babushka who was passing by a rally going to buy bread, and you can be banged up in prison for 15 days, okay, if you're a babushka, probably. I think that this is the whole idea, that you sit in your flat, in your apartment, and you think, do I go to this protest or not? Well, I have all the rights and basically I'm not guilty of anything. I'm not a political activist. I'm not a member of any party. I'm not a member of Navalny sort of network okay, I'll be probably, I will get a few hits from the police, but I'll feel good. Probably not anymore, because in such circumstances, you never know. You'll be reported to your superior, and your superior will say, oh, by the way, Ivan Petrovich, I think that we have a reorganization, and probably you should submit your voluntary resignation within next two weeks, and that's it. I suppose that this is the effect that the system wants to achieve. And I think that on top of it, you have a leadership which also thinks, and this is an important fourth observation, which also thinks really in terms of its place in history. Uh, yes, these people not only rule Russia, they also own it wholesale, as opposed to the Politburo of old. It's the Kremlin that owns all the diamonds, all the gas, all the oil, and stuff like that. But also these people, and I do remember it quite well from the Soviet days, people from the security services were always taught by their superiors, by the, if you wish, by the myth of the KGB, that they are the you know the Knights Templar of the Soviet regime, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they are la crème de la crème of the Soviet society. So when people say, well, it's a big contradiction that General XYZ, who's now running company YZA, (laughs) sends his uh, daughter to Harvard and has a villa in California, although he says every day that America is the biggest enemy. No, there is no contradiction in their view. Because if you are a Knight Templar of Great Russia, now, not of the Soviet regime, of the Russian Empire, 2.0 or 3.0, I think, counting out of the, of the Soviet Union. Well, being a knight Templar needs to be well remunerated. That's mm. the worldview. And this is, I think, what is really, really misunderstood. These people, from the point of view of a kind of Western person, are hypocrites. But from their own point of view, they're not. Right, right. Yeah, know that makes sense. They're yeah. due for promoting and enshrining in history the great Russian dream of being I mean, great. The great Russian dream, dream of being great. I mean, I, if you I, get billion dollars along the way, well, I'm worth it. What I hear you saying is they've lost a degree of passive acquiescence,
1: and they're trying to force it back, right? By this kind of lottery repression. Um, I don't know. Yes,
0: if you think that? Um, this is the thing. I mean, you, if you are a security services officer, you can never be too cautious. So the moment you feel that there is some kind of dodginess in the air, a couple of percent lost from last month's Putin popularity rating, Mm -hmm. you switch into overdrive. And this is an important thing because why do they do it? Because this is a vertical system which functions essentially on loyalty, or rather I would qualify it on public display of loyalty, which is the flip side of fear. And so maybe these 2% won't do anything to United Russia or Putin or whatever is the issue. But you can't be seen as being passive about the 2% of the rating, about an increased activity of the local Navalny headquarters, of the, you know, sort of uh, too many critical pieces about Putin in your on your local blog or whatever. You can't be seen. As passive, because passivity may mean disloyalty, and if it is disloyalty, you can be plugged off the lucrative state budget, which is your sweetener, which is your which is your carrot in the system of carrots and sticks. So I think that because of that, a lot of stuff is happening because people presume that their boss would want them to do it, and then the boss will presume that his boss or hers boss will want. He more hurt to be more active. And so it goes all the way up to the presidential administration ultimately to Putin. So it's lots of people trying to second guess many other people or many other people that are senior than them.
1: I don't know if you saw Vladimir a mutual friends column in the Washington Post. Uh, Vladimir's a frequent guest in this podcast. Look forward to having him back on. But he was writing about the classification of Navalny's organizations as extremist organizations. And actually, it was this column that kind of inspired my opening monologue here. But Volodya writes, I'm quoting, now, last week for the first time since the Soviet era, the Kremlin officially classified opposition to its rule as a criminal offense. In a decision hearkening back to the infamous Article 70 of Soviet Russia's criminal code that penalized, quote unquote, Anti-Soviet agitation and propaganda, the f- infamous anti-Sovietsky Dietzelnist clause of the criminal code, and that landed prominent dissidents from Vladimir Bukovsky to Yuri Orlov in prison and labor camps. So basically, Vladimir Karmurza, our, our mutual friend, is uh basically saying what's being going on with the Navalny organization harkens back to Article Seven of Soviet Russia's criminal code. Would you agree with that?
0: Seventy. Yes. Yeah, Article 7. I will agree yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah. I will agree with that. Yes. Moreover, a lot of new laws, if they are drafted now, will mean a retroactive application of the law. We've seen that once with the second uh, UCAS case with uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Mm-hmm. But now it's going to be massive. Essentially I would agree, I'm not a lawyer, but I'd agree that these laws, if applied as they are written, will mean that- part of the Russian citizen's civil rights will be arbitrarily taken away from them because of their political convictions. Yeah, And of course, it. I'm sure that it contradicts not only the spirit, but the letter of the constitution, but the constitutional court will do nothing about it. First of all, because private citizens can't anymore lodge complaints with the constitutional court. Secondly, even If a justice or two have their, if they disagree with the court's decision, they can't publish them anymore. Mm -hmm. It's really, really a complete dead end. And I think that, yes, it resembles the Times of Brezhnev. It's probably not 58th Mm -hmm. uh, article of Stalin's criminal code, which was actually the Gulag uh, article. But it smacks of yes, it's Brezhnevite. There's no doubt about that. I wanted to,
1: um, I mean, I was hoping to have our common friend Maria snigavaya on the program with you this week, but she was unavailable because like me, she's busy grading exams. But she's been doing some really groundbreaking research on Russian public opinion, and particularly into the-
0: Yes, she's, she's done great research.
1: But this is showing me that what I've come to call the power horizontal is getting stronger and stronger. Um, it's not just two percent; it's a growing percentage, and it's the it's urban areas, it's urban professionals, it's the young people, and that you have increasing ties among social groups across Russia's eleven time zones, which is one of the first. You know, back in the Soviet times, if something happened in in Khabarovsk, nobody ever heard about it in Moscow. Right now, mm-hmm. citizens are connecting across Russia's eleven time zones, and this power horizontal, as I like to call it is getting stronger and stronger. We've discussed up until now the measures that have been taken by the power vertical to repress, to kind of put down dissent in society. What is your assessment of how resilient this power horizontal can be going forward? I mean, can they destroy this just by branding Navalny and these organizations as an extremist? Or is this an organic process that is going to outlive any attempt to repress it?
0: I think that they are trying to destroy Navalny's network, and maybe they will succeed. But there is a Russian saying, ne a saint's throne is never empty. Right. But essentially, it means that there is no vacuum, in, especially in politics. So I think that something will come to replace it. And over time, this power horizontal, as he called it, Will be stronger. It may be remodeled after the the push against Navalny, because it maybe we don't know. Maybe if the economic situation doesn't get better, it may be people starting you know independent trade unions and things like that. I think uh, as it was in Poland in mm-hmm. the late seventies uh, during the Solidarność days and and uh, in the early eighties. I think that an important thing is to link these, as it was actually in Poland, to link the professional urban middle class people, the intellectuals, with people who work. The working class, yeah. Uh, The working class. I mean, it's not huge. Not
1: in Poland, you had the Roman Catholic Church that was able to do yes. that. There's no analogous at the Roman
0: Catholic Church, and in, in what's even more important, Poland was de facto occupied mm. by the Soviet Union. There was a northern group of forces, Soviet army stationed in Poland, and it was essentially a puppet regime of the right. Soviets. When you have occupation, there is I think to some extent, I don't, I don't want to sound blasé and cynical, but definitely if you have a foreign occupation, it is easier to expand the base because people dislike foreigners being on their land. Right. I well, yeah, think that, uh, yeah. that even at 57, my country can have me any time if the Chinese, for example, want to invade. But I think that this is different in Russia, because Russia is not occupied, and political opposition is domestic, creating viable domestic political opposition is always more difficult in such circumstances. It will happen. I think that, as I said before, there's going to be a gradual realization that this regime is is in the dead end. I think that Putin understands that it may happen. That's why he continues to play all these games with Ukraine and the possibility of war. I still think that I would venture to say, I would, I would bet that he still thinks that a quote-unquote small victorious war mm-hmm. is always a good recipe to deflect public anger and to deflect public attention from uh, what happens domestically. But I think that on the other hand, he realizes that maybe that's not such a good idea because a pushback by the West may be pretty serious if, if, if it's really something along the lines of 2014. And the Ukrainians would fight. <laughs> this yes, would not the be fight. Although I'd say that I still do not exclude Putin going for the recognition of the so-called republics of Donbass. Yeah. I, uh, I don't
1: exclude that either, but I think that has limited utility. The Crimea packs a powerful emotional and patriotic
0: punch. The Donbass, not so much. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. I think that it's well. I always ask forgiveness from my Ukrainian friends. It's just a silly joke, but uh, I think only an armor parade along the Krishatic <laughs> Kiev, yeah, uh, the main throughfare of Kiev, yeah, would replicate the yeah. Crimea effect, and that ain't happening. And that this is, is not funny. going to happen. So I think that uh, nothing. Belarus won't work like that. Uh, even a parachute drop on Belisi won't work like that. I think that. It's not easy now to fight a small victorious war after the Crimea. I agree, but Brian, the issue is we think so. Do they? Whether Putin thinks so, that's, we don't, that, Yeah, that's the million. I still think that he thinks that jacking up the tension is well a pretty good idea. I'd say that we've been close in in my time. I'm too young to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. But in my time, the highest point of tension was 1983, with the perishing missiles in Europe, with uh, Grenada, with uh, the so-called peace movement in Europe financed by Andropov, with the Korean airliner shut down over Sakhalin. This really spy scandals every day. I think that we lived in the last few weeks And we are living constantly in the shadow of this new 1983. Yeah, no, I I would
1: agree with that. And even it's funny at the time, we didn't really realize just how tense it was at that time. I missed the Cuban Missile Crisis too. I was born five months after it, but (laughs) but, so I would agree with you that the early 80s were the most tense time. I wanna switch to foreign affairs in the second segment, but before we do, I just briefly wanna touch on one point. And this is Putin's State of the Nation speech where he seemed to be trying to buy off the population. He clearly, and that again, I watched that and said, this is not a confident ruler. He seemed to clearly be buying off the population. Did you see that as well? And do you think it'll work?
0: I think yes. I think that, well, first of all, I think you're right. He was trying to buy off the population. And he, moreover, the way he presented himself, the way he worked on his image for this speech was very interesting. He was much milder, much more comforting, as the English will say, and a much mm-hmm. more warm, kind of a nice father of the nation type of figure. There were a few steely notes, especially when he was speaking about red lines for- Aimed, at, aimed at the foreigners and aimed so on so west, forth. Yeah. But generally, he was trying to be very sort of warm and comforting. So yes, he's trying to- by the loyalty before the elections, because these elections will be important for him, not in the sense that the result is in doubt, but he really wants an acclamation, because that will acclaim and that will give him the right to say that his decision to essentially make himself president for life last year and give himself two more terms was justified because people want it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that he will be able to buy off population for some time. You get money paid into your account automatically, why not? But also, let me be very clear about it. It was not only an outreach to the population. There have been very important steps taken in terms of giving money to propaganda outlets, Mm -hmm. including RT, actually. There were several decrees signed that improved the lot of uh, the so-called Siloviki, of people from the security services, the army, and the police, including a special ukaz, a special decree, giving priority to children of yes. these people in university admission. So I think that what he really wants to do, and this is a long-term plan, I mean, that actually gives to me complete certainty that he doesn't, that Putin doesn't tend to stay for another whatever, 15 yeah. years. No, I think yeah, uh, until, he wants to end. bring into this world a new intelligentsia, a new class of educated people that will owe their education to him. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And the the, the flip side of that is he is targeting the youth right now that are Mm opposition-minded and targeting the intelligentsia that is opposition-minded. So I think those are two sides of the same
0: coin, Yes, I think, and I think that it is important before we switch to foreign policy. And I think it is important because that gives you an idea of how Putin sees himself. Mm -hmm. He's not an easy enemy. He's not You know, some kind of tin pot dictator from Mario Vargas Llosa's or Marcus Novel's buffoon, you know, maybe even a murderous buffoon, but a buffoon. Putin sees himself as a builder of new Russia. And along the way, he wants to consolidate this regime. He wants to essentially, as far as I understand, the idea is to give Russia to the children and grandchildren of the current elite, in a pretty much distinct and specific and clear way, as a former estate of Russian aristocrat, yeah. lands and, and manor and serfs, will pass. Right. So, so right. I think that that's the way they see Corporation Russia, Russia Inc., should yeah. be inherited.
1: And that raises a whole new set of questions that are subject for probably another program of whether Absolutely. Putinism could survive Putin. But in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and shift the focus to foreign affairs and look at the Putin regime's calculations in Belarus, Ukraine, and in its relations with the West. I happen to know somebody who wrote a pretty good column about that about a week ago. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your Host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the U.K. McDowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, which I miss dearly, is my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to the Power Article Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can you can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical.
0: В кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас по видеосвязи Никто не слушает. В России сегодня вступает сейчас. в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. И Я уже разношен. А сотрудники безопасности. С новым годом вас. С новым веком.
1: So, Kostya, your latest column for Deutsche Welle got my attention. Um, In your analysis of Putin's state of the nation speech, you seem to be suggesting that he is seeking a deal with the West, and the deal is the following, leave me alone at home, leave me alone in Belarus, and I'll make some concessions on Ukraine. Um, Allow me to quote you to yourself. Putin's speech, quote, sounded like yet another signal by Putin to the West, as long as he has left home alone to strangle the opposition, while at the same time securing Belarus, he may stop meddling in Ukraine, especially if it is made to, quote, unquote, behave. Explain your thinking here, Kostya.
0: Well, I do think that Putin realizes that he has limits set on him in terms of interfering in the life of his neighbors. I don't know whether he realizes by now that he's probably not going to get a Yalta II agreement, which will leave the former Soviet space to the Kremlin to manage. But I do think that he thinks he can strike a deal with the current administration. It may sound strange, but I do think that he assesses Joe Biden, as someone who's been around in politics for 47 years, that means he's cynical enough to understand what Putin wants and probably give Putin some, and Putin may be giving him some. Actually, it's interesting that the fact that the previous president was so erratic and so unpredictable gave his administration a certain edge of a Putin. Because Putin thought that he's the world champion of unpredictability, and suddenly, bang, he's just a vice <laughs> champion. Uh, not so with Biden. And I think that he wants to use it. And I think that he read the signal of Biden's interview and of then Biden's conversation with him and Biden's invitation to come and talk about the climate and things like that as a signal. We are not shutting the door on you. So he wants to, and the invitation to uh, have a summit is important. He thinks that America is ready to talk. If America is ready to talk, it's not only ready to talk about, say, the New START agreement. It may be ready to talk about other things. Mm. And I thing that he wants to probe the US administration, because as I mentioned on your program once or twice, Washington is of paramount importance to Moscow, uh, the sun for the Putin elite, for the, for the Putin ruling clique. Uh, the sun rises and sets in Washington, D.C.
1: Well, as so, a Washingtonian, I like the sound of that. Uh, but uh,
0: <laughs> well, well you like Putin watching the sunset, I don't know. <laughs> no, well, I don't like that. I, but... think, I, think, I, think, I think that this is important for him, that um, President of the United States, in spite of everything that happened, Navalny's poisoning, Skripals, Ukraine, you name it, still wants to talk to him. So I think that he wants a deal, and I think he understands that a deal may involve being a bit more mild on Ukraine, but he also thinks about, as he likes to say, Mm -hmm. our European partners. And that means that in the current climate of chumminess between Washington, Berlin, and Paris, this kind of, con- the new connect, which didn't exist under Trump. He thinks that he can always rely on, on the Germans and on the French to convince the Americans, okay, we'll handle Putin a little bit, you know, we'll, we'll talk to Zelensky, we'll talk to this. I think that he wants, he, he wants to probe Biden uh, and see whether he can have a deal. Belarus is out of the question because that's for him now a strategic issue. If Lukashenko falls, then Putin is seen as weak and incompetent. Putin doesn't mind being seen as a dictator. I don't think that he was offended by Biden essentially calling him a killer. I think he probably took it as a compliment. I think so. <laughs> if he called him a sissy, that would have been a <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. that would have been an offense. Yep. But I think that being called a killer, no problem. And by the way, I do believe this tale that Biden told us, that uh, he once told Putin, I don't think you have a soul, and Putin said, we can do business together. Yeah, that's, well, I we, think that's we, the we, way. We, through, through. we understand each other, he said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I
1: think that Putin thinks that he can strike a deal with this administration. I mean, I have a couple of thoughts on this. I think if Putin thinks he can play Biden, I think he's sadly mistaken. Biden's got no illusions. The president has no illusions about Russia. Now, what I my understanding of the of the administration's thinking at the moment is that they would like to turn the relationship with Russia from an unpredictable adversarial relationship into a predictable adversarial relationship to make it more similar to what our relationship was with the Soviet Union. It was adversarial, but it was very predictable. I'm not sure Putin wants to go there, but what I – my understanding of what the administration's thinking on this is, is that if we could move toward, yeah, having talks about strategic nuclear arms control and have talks about how to avoid an accidental military conflict um, and things like that, have talks on climate right, and have this area where we do have a relationship, just like there were areas where we had a relationship with the Soviet Union. But on matters of principle, I don't see this administration budging. I don't see this administration budging on Ukraine's sovereignty, um, or even on Belarus's sovereignty. So I think, I mean, this, this, is, this is something, again, my understanding of, of, of the president and his inner circle's thinking on this is that these, these are very important issues. So if Putin wants to create with, with President Biden what Vladimir Frolov calls Russian-American committee to rule the world, I think he's going to be sorely mistaken because we're not going to get into you know, discussions about other countries' sovereignty. I, at least I don't think so, and I would be both greatly surprised and sorely disappointed. If we did enter into those types of Yalta-type discussions, I don't see that happening. Um, with the Europeans, I'm a little, a little more nervous. But that's, that's my thinking on it now. What I'm also curious about, Kostya, is your, uh, but no. What I wanted to drill down on is a, a particular quote from your, your article saying, especially if Ukraine is made to behave. And where you say that Putin is essentially hoping the Europeans will push Zelensky to quote unquote behave. What does behave mean? Stop being a sovereign state? Because if that's what behaving means, because I don't think Russia's ever going to give up its designs on Ukraine. I think it sees it. Well, I it think as-
0: that Putin wants from Zelensky to stop harassing Viktor Medvedchuk, Putin's <laughs> main influencer in Ukraine. He wants Zelensky to start talking to the Russian puppets in Donetsk and Luhansk. Under any pretext, for as long as possible, he wants to regain some of his influence in Ukraine by forcing Zelensky to do at least one or two things that Moscow wants. And I think that, I mean, I don't think he will succeed. No, nor nor do because I. Because even if he wanted to, Ukrainian domestic politics
1: would yeah, not I mean, allow that.
0: There was no defenestration in Kiev, but if Zelensky does something like that, it's a possible development. Frankly speaking, I think that Putin can't lose Ukraine. Putin wants to show not only the West but Ukrainians that he still matters. And I think that he is concerned about the Crimea, including water supplies. So he has strategic necessity to harass Ukraine in order to squeeze out at least some concessions. Well for example, if the Ukrainians switch on water supplies to to the Crimea, other whatever humanitarian pretext that will be a victory for Putin. That will be, by the way, quite a big thing. So I think that he wants also what he does want Zelensky to stop doing, is to stop talking about NATO, about uh, the necessity to become part of the West and you and of, of whatever. I don't think he's going to get it, but... Yeah, he's not going to get that. I don't think his information about Ukraine is accurate in a sense that, well, Russian embassy is pretty much isolated there. It does exist, but I don't think they have a lot of context. Viktor Medvedchuk is on, he has his own agenda. I think that also Putin sees Ukraine as this kind of Russia where people speak with a weird accent. <laughs> I don't think he understands that Ukraine is truly a different country yep. and it's the different people that have a different mentality. Mm -hmm. I think that he's not grasping what's happening in Ukraine. I also think that he is sure that he can continue to corrupt Ukraine, the Ukrainian business class. He's probably right about that. Use the oligarchs. I think that's a fair fair assumption. So I suppose that he wants Ukraine to basically stop talking about joining the West and be somewhere in the limbo. Mm. He may well guarantee its security in some way after that. But I do think that he wants to stop all this talk about being in NATO yeah. and about joining the West and so forth. I mean, you can say, or we can say, he's wrong. He may be wrong, uh,
1: but that train yeah. has left the station. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, so. I mean, he's not going to get that, which means and he's, he will not give up on dominating Ukraine, and Ukraine will not acquiesce to Russian dominance. And so here we are, right? And this is going to be, I mean, I say it all the time, and I'll say it again. Ukraine is the West Berlin of our time. And, and the strategic importance to both sides is such. And that I don't see this being resolved anytime soon. No, I actually only going to get resolved.
0: You, I actually think I'll see Ukraine in NATO in my lifetime.
1: I, I, I think I'll see Ukraine in, in NATO in my lifetime, uh, too. And I that everybody knows my views on this. I'd welcome it with open arms. Um, but we are pushing up against the end here, Kosti. I could go on for another hour, but I, I know it's like 11 o'clock at night over there in Vilnius. I'm getting signals that it's time to wrap it all up. So on that note, we shall wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you've been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non- resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from across the Atlantic and Lithuania's wonderfully awesome capital Vilnius, which I dearly miss, has been my old friend Konstantin Egert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Kostya, thanks as always for an enlightening discussion. Thank you, Brian. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legus is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And a very special thanks to Cecilia Wynn, who has been handling our all-important post-production duties. And sadly, Cecilia will be leaving us after this episode to take a summer internship in South Korea, but we hope she will return to the Power Vertical family sometime in the future. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. If you do so, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Join us again next week. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.